0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, the Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called life, Matthew Debiaz. Tonight's guest is novelist Nancy E. Potter. Nancy was born in New Orleans, but lived for a time in Europe during her childhood. She has been writing since she was ten years old and she and after she completed her college education, she worked on Capitol Hill and the White House. She has also gone into business for herself, designing and selling maternity clothes in Houston, Texas. Last September, Nancy released her debut novel, Barber's Cut, set in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Nancy, it's an honor and privilege to have you on the show. I'd like to start off by asking you, please tell our listeners, what is your debut novel, Barber's Cut, all about?
1: Well, I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you. Yes.
1: Well, I will tell you that Barber's Cut is about, based on the life of my great-grandfather. I grew up hearing stories about this man all of my life, actually, and uh, about what a wonderful person he was, what a great businessman he was. He uh, actually started out very poor, very poor family living on a flatboat floating down the Mississippi River, Mm. and he, on his own, managed to become one of the wealthiest men in the South. So it was quite an extraordinary uh, voyage, and one that uh, I thought would be interesting to people. And it was always interesting to me, but of course, his blood runs through my veins. But I thought that other people would also find it interesting how he managed to do this.
0: Now, Nancy, was Clyde Barber your maternal or paternal great-grandfather?
1: He's my maternal.
0: Okay. Now, how did, okay, now, what was it like doing the research? For the novel, what sources were you able to discover while you were crafting the novel? What were you, what were you discovering?
1: Well, that was uh, sort of the uh, the thing that I knew the least about. I've been a writer pretty much all my life, but I'd never done research, and so it sort of I, I started very slowly. It took me a long time to write the book, and it took me years to do the research, and. Uh, I found out that this person, who I had heard stories of all my life, and who everyone had emulated—people who knew him, who uh, who were still alive at the time, long time ago when I interviewed them—all uh, loved him. They thought he was this wonderful person and had done all these great things. Well, when I started doing research, I found out all the things that he actu- actually had done, and and. I was just shocked and amazed that he had done so many things. In fact, the book is very long, it's 550 pages Wow. and I had to, I had to cut out story after story after story because he'd done so many things. So that was, it, I, it was all old newspapers. Mm. It's like on, on microfiche, you can remember that maybe. I yeah. don't know how old you are. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. And yeah.
1: it was very painstaking and um, eye straining but also incredible, all of a sudden, to read something. And, uh, for instance, in this little town of Franklin, Louisiana, where he lived for a long time, they had, of course, a newspaper way back when he moved there in about 1900. And you'd find little things. Every day they would talk about who was sick and who did this and who did that, who was getting married, all the little things that people now would never imagine it would be in a newspaper. Well, it all led to a lot of interesting stories that I could add that I wouldn't have known about. Mm. And, um, oh, I could go on and on about research. I got to be a research buff. I I was scared of it and didn't know how to do it, and then I started loving it.
0: Nancy, what was the greatest surprise you discovered when you were exploring Clyde Barber's life?
1: I think my greatest surprise was how many companies he was actually involved in mm-hmm. because I don't know if you think about back when he was doing this there was no technology. Mm-hmm. so I mean the latest thing was the telephone they finally could call across the ocean so he had he had companies in Europe, companies in Central America, companies in different places in, in, in the United States and he was somehow keeping track of all this. And all these things that were going in, all going going on in all these different places, very far removed from each other. I thought when I, when I really sat down and thought about that, I thought that was amazing. How in the world did he do that?
0: Now, was he able, considering he amassed a, 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 a diversity of wealth, was he rubbing shoulders with uh, the leader, like the state of Louisiana or in the South? Was he rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous?
1: Well, yes, because he had been there. Uh, he'd grown up with some of the people who became the politicians. Mm. And um, as he went up in the ranks of wealth, he was rubbing shoulders with some of those people. And as he got wealthier, of course, more of those people. And uh, so the, the people that not necessarily, if, if you didn't live in Louisiana, they might not be names that were familiar to you, but people who are old Louisiana people would uh, would know some of the names but it wouldn't be a name necessarily that you or someone else would, um, would appreciate.
0: Try me, name, name a few, please try me, try me.
1: Oh, no, okay. Well, Mayor Charleston of Franklin was someone who was very instrumental with Clyde um, because he they had people that lived in this little town in Franklin that became, uh, they had two governors from Franklin, they had senator from Franklin, uh, actually Murphy Foster was the second foster who was a governor of Louisiana who lives in Franklin now. And so all these people that started there um, grew out and, be, and these families it was a, always a family thing in the south yeah. as you may know yeah, yeah. Um and and the families would grow and and that they just kept going and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm misplacing names for you, okay. but I could, but I could tell you the fosters were, were people who were close to my family, close to Clyde Barber's family. And um, and then here in Houston, I have pictures of him uh, shaking hands with Mayor Holcomb of Houston, who, you know, there's Holcomb everything in Houston. Yeah, yeah. And he was one of the first, He was one of the people who started the first museum in Houston Art Museum in Houston Museum of Fine Arts. Yes. And I have a, I have a piece of paper that shows his signature as one of the people who gave $5,000 along with um, Howard Hughes Jr. Mm. And wow. people in Houston of names that all the streets are named after. Yeah. And so by that point, he was, you know, along with, uh, you know, moving along with all the people who were who were doing the cool stuff.
0: Nancy. Since this is your your maternal great-grandfather, how much of Clyde Barber is inside of you personally? Do you feel an enormous sense of bond with him?
1: Well, I will tell you that I didn't until I started doing all of this, which, of course, I guess makes sense. Um, A cousin of mine who I found, I didn't know about this cousin until maybe five years ago, we kind of found each other and, and I was writing this book and he was looking at it and trying to help me with it and his name's Steve Dollinger and, 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 I was getting frustrated and feeling like nothing was working. And he, he looked at me and he said, you have to remember we have Clyde Barber's blood running in our veins.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then also, I think that was really part of a turning point where I thought, wow, that's right. I have him. He's part of me. I'm part of him. And that's very special. And when I'm sitting here, actually, I'm sitting here on my bed in my bedroom. I'm looking at a a picture of Clyde, his wife, Jenny, my great grandmother. And I look at them all the time. And over here, I've got a wall full of pictures of all of them. And um, I do feel like I have this amazing bond with him now that of course I would never have had if I hadn't done this, all of this. But yes, I do. And, and I will tell you and all the people who are listening, I guess it's not a secret, uh, that I talked to him.
0: Yes. Yes. I understand completely. Uh, Nancy, why write a novel? Why didn't you just write a genuine nonfiction biography? I'm just curious.
1: Well, I'm a writer. I mean, I've been writing short stories. I've, I have three-quarters of the novel written in my early 20s, which actually is horrible when I go back and read it. Oh. But, um, <laughs> poems, and I, I took every every creative writing class I could ever came across, high school, college, and after college, I went to some, some different um, seminars and things. So I was a writer. It's a completely different thing to write a biography. I was a fiction writer, mm. and so... Uh, First of all, that's what I did. That was my natural proclivity. And then uh, when I started finding out so much about him, I had, but I realized that there are these big chunks. I know all about this one thing in 1900, and I don't really know a whole lot until 1906. So I got to do something to connect them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I decided, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't sit down and decide this one day in the process. Of thinking about it and starting to write it, and I realized that I w- I wanted to fill it in. I wanted it to be a whole story. It's yeah. a story about a family. It's not just um, facts and f- facts about what happened. It's a real story. It's a really good story.
0: Now, in the novel, he meets an amazing woman named Jenny. Please tell our listeners about the, this woman named Jenny.
1: Well, since it happens in the first chapter, I'll tell you that. Um, she runs away from home mm. in the first chapter.
0: Mm.
1: She is being forced to get married. And, um, it's not the first time her father's tried to marry her off mm. and she's very strong-willed and she says she's not going to do that. So she runs away in the middle of the night and, uh, a friend of her mother's who had died, uh, knew this family. That lives on the flatboat, and so they worked it out so that she ran away and got on the flatboat. Was going to be gone about six months because it would take about six months for it to get back to where it started, the flatboat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, she figured her father would be over it by then, and mm-hmm. she'd go back home. Well, we'll have you'll have to see if that happens or not. But she so she she starts out very strong willed, and then of course very frightened. You can imagine a, a woman alone. She was you know 18 years old
2: yeah and
1: she's out in the world by herself oh that's not that's really not good back then yeah and so she it, she took a big chance doing what she did and ended up meeting the love of her life and first time he saw her he was taken with her
0: It's not weird, though. I mean, based on my own uh, personal ancestry, because my mama was born and her ancestors came from the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. Women married much younger in those days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They
1: definitely
0: did. Yeah. Don't laugh. I had a distant maternal ancestor. She was only 14 years old when she got married. Her husband was 17 years old. Wow. So it's not that weird. I mean, back then, that was quite normal, actually, when you think about it
1: i agree i agree and circumstances were just so different and of course women didn't typically go on to higher education and not a lot of men did
0: yes yes question did you ever i mean this jenny i mean this is this is a real woman correct i mean did you ever uncover a photograph of jenny
1: oh i have photographs of all of
2: them ah
0: yes i'm
1: staring at her right now yes and um my grandmother who was their daughter one of their daughters kept everything so i have i even have pressed flowers oh. i have my great-grandfather's glasses i have my great-grandmother's opera. <laughs> i have china and silver and and oh. you would not believe i have at least 10 boxes full of stuff and um that hangs around the house in various
2: places
0: <laughs> yes 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 absolutely uh, fantastic what an archive I have you ever thought of like doing like a little local state documentary. I mean, like your local PBS channel and talk about this, you know, do like a little documentary showing these beautiful, wonderful artifacts.
1: Well, you know, I've never thought of it that way, honestly. I've thought that I've, you know, I've had some friends come over and just, and I know one, one woman, actually, she was only about 18 at the time. She said, your house is so fascinating. Yes. Well, I, I think it is, but I don't expect other people to think so. But yes, I do think that uh, that it, it would be fascinating to people because some of what I have, no one would quite believe.
0: Yes, yes, I think it would be most compelling. You should consider it, really. You know, I would. I, I wish idea. I were a documentarian. A I'd make you an offer. You know. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, there you go. I yeah. think that's a great idea. I would have to clean up my house, though.
0: That'd be the first problem. Okay, let's talk now, Nancy. Let's talk about yourself. You were born in New Orleans, but why did your why did your folks move you move you and your family to Europe? What what what, what why did that happen? Why did you all move to Europe?
1: Well, I'm I'm the last of five girls. Okay, and so my father was in the oil business. He mm. was a civil engineer and he designed um, offshore platforms. Mm. And so he'd been working for Gulf Oil for eighteen years in New Orleans. Yeah, and wanted to make more money wanted to have a better life for his kids and for himself and so he just decided i don't know where he got the gumption to up and take himself to new york city and find a job with a big oil company
2: yeah. you
1: know all the way from new orleans and and managed to get a, a job with amico and they moved us up to connecticut for about nine months and then sent us to europe and um, that's how that happened very quickly. I went from Louisiana to Europe. It was quite a transition.
0: Where in Europe, may I ask? Where?
1: Well, the first place we landed was The Hague in Holland. Mm-hmm. And um, he worked out of uh, out of the Hague and worked a lot in Rotterdam. Yeah. And then we lived. Then we moved to London and mm-hmm. lived over there. And then moved back to the states.
0: What part of London, may I ask? Because I was in London in 89. I was staying in Paddington. What sector? What section of the city?
1: Oh, well, we lived in Kensington.
0: Ooh, okay, nice House and trendy.
1: Park, Kensington Park Gardens.
0: Yes, yes, very nice, yes. So, okay, so your father was in the oil business. Now, were your, so I, were your parents, both of your parents, native Louisianans?
1: No. Um, my mother had lived a lot of her life in Louisiana, My father had grown up in South Carolina, we went to the Smoky Mountains every summer because his parents lived there, so when you said that about the Smokies, I, you know, was smiling to myself.
0: What what part of South Carolina, Nancy? What part?
1: Well, they, when I was born, they were living in Spartanburg, and they'd lived there for a long time.
0: Oh, my, because don't laugh. My grandfather was born in Pelzer in Anderson County, and I have some a distant re- maternal ancestor they their names were heatherly they lived in and around spartanburg is
1: that right yes Isn't yes
0: that amazing? yeah and in fact my mother's ancestors came mostly from the haywood and henderson county region of north carolina
1: okay. okay Yes. yeah well that's so funny that we have that very very common uh close relation there
0: now nancy what led you to start writing at the age of 10.
1: That's a really good question. Uh, we were li- we had moved to Holland. We hadn't been living there very long. And um I had written some little poems and I don't know why. I don't know what started me be. when I, before that I'd written at least two poems. Yes. One of which I remember but I won't tell you. Okay. It'd be too embarrassing.
2: Yeah. Oh. So,
1: and uh we went out and we saw the
2: Queen. Ooh. Queen
1: Juliana, I think her name was. Yes. And she was on the on the on the balcony, you know, waving to all her subjects. Yes. Well, I was about nine or ten and I was totally fascinated and I had no experience with any of this. And there were some birds flying around and they caught my eye and I thought, I wonder what what the birds are thinking <laughs> And my first short story was these birds watching this watching queen Giuliani, juliana yeah. Yeah. Juliani, listen, uh, give her speech to the crowd up on the balcony uh,
0: now you now in your in your bio it says you did work on capitol hill and later the white house i mean did you work for a congress uh, congressman or, or when i
1: graduated from college um i went to dc to work from as an intern for my congressman from new orleans and I worked there, uh, and the, for about a year. And then Reagan got in the White House, mm-hmm. and I was fortunate enough to get a, a, a job in the Reagan White House. I was a peon, don't get me wrong, but I got to work in the Reagan White House. And
0: which executive got, office? What 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 capacity?
1: Office of Communications mm-hmm. under David Gergen.
0: Ooh, and, yes,
1: um, yes. And, Frank Ursa Mar- Urso Marso was my direct boss. And um, it was quite an experience. I was there when he was shot. Ooh, oh, my and goodness. I a, and I was there when the Pope shot. And I was there when when Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers. Yeah. And um, it was very exciting and very awful at the same time. So I didn't I didn't last very long. I lasted about a year. And I'd had my fill of White House politics.
0: Oh, my.
2: And
1: um, then came to Houston and worked for some political campaigning, did that for on and off for a while. Yes. And tried my hand at all kinds of things.
0: Yes. I mean, uh, Nancy, do you still design and sell maternity (laughs) clothes? I mean, what led you to become a businesswoman?
1: Oh, looking for something to do. Mm. You know, I I, uh, didn't want to be in politics anymore, Mm. and so I was searching for something. And I had started sewing my own clothes when I was about seven. So I, I was a very good seamstress and I always liked women's clothes that no one else had. And I started actually with uh, maternity clothes and women's clothes and children's clothes. I designed a little of all of it and sold them one at a time. And uh, the maternity clothes, I had a girlfriend, a wealthy girlfriend actually, and he was pregnant and couldn't find anything to wear to nice events and when she went out to lunch that she should wear you know maternity clothes were completely different back then depending on your age you know what i'm talking about yes yes and um so i did some things for her and that started that with the maternity end of things was was designing clothes for her to wear out that were nice and so they were you know more expensive nicer maternity clothes but i also was doing some things uh, some clothes for women and um, children's things. I just like designing things. I'm not an artist. I can't. I couldn't paint myself out of a paper bag. Isn't that the expression? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I love to design things.
0: That's beautiful. Things. You know, my mother's mother. She was a master seamstress too. She was a wizard with needle and thread. So really, yes, she was a genius. I mean, she she sewed my mother's wedding dress and her prom gown too. Yes. That's
1: wonderful. And I shoot, I haven't done it in so long. I wouldn't even know where to start.
0: Now, Nancy, on your website, you do fundraising work for a very rare genetic skin disease. Please tell our listeners, why do you do this and how can they help?
1: Well, I have a son who was born in 1992 and they didn't know this, but when he was born by cesarean section, luckily. Uh, He lost more than half his skin. Oh dear! Turned out he had—he was not expected to survive. He had this rare disease called epidermolysis bullosa. They—they call it EB for short. Oh dear! And it's a blistering disease. They—they're missing—they're missing missing some uh, some his is a keratin gene problem. The skin layers don't stay together properly. Oh dear! I'm losing all my words that tie the skins together they're missing or they're far apart and so if you were to to just lightly rub his skin it would come off because there's nothing to, to anchor the skin to each other. Ouch. Oh, dear. And so most of the people, most of the children don't survive, there's oh. three different forms of it. He had a form that actually gets better <clears throat> so it's affected his entire life and he'll never have a normal life. But he survived and um, doesn't get the, he used to get a couple hundred blisters a day that had to be lanced and wrapped. And um, it was, it, it, it's beyond imagination. Oh. And they call it, one of the tag phrases is the worst disease you've never heard of. Oh, and so it took, you know, 24-hour care for years. And a feeding tube because he had blisters in his mouth. He couldn't walk or talk or eat. He had blisters on his hands and his feet and everywhere. So I'm going into too much detail once I get started. There is an organization that's like the name Deborah. It's spelled D-E-B-R-A dot org and. they would love for you to go onto their website and see what you could do to help what they call butterfly children, because their skin's as fragile as a butterfly one. But you can you, also learn about it on my website, like you did.
0: Yeah, my heart, my heart goes out to you and to him. Okay, please, we send all our love to him. Okay.
1: Oh, you're so sweet. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's not fun.
0: Nancy, whenever I interview an author on my show, I always love to ask the standard question. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors and of those favorite authors, did any of them light the spark inside of you to become a writer or perhaps influence your writing style?
1: That's a good question. Yes. Um, I can tell you that when I was a little girl and we lived in Louisiana still, I read every Laura Ingalls Wilder book that existed. Little House on the Prairie constantly. I just couldn't get enough of that. Um, and so that was the first books that I really loved. Um, and as I was older, I got to, I, I got to, where I really liked to read Walker Percy.
2: Mm.
1: Walker Percy had a very interesting kind of poetic way of writing. And he wrote about today's society and the way I think a lot of it was the way Southern people look at how things are changing. Yes. They call him an existentialist with that's a little too highbrow, I think. Yes. And so he, you know, the movie goer was one of his books and Thanatos Syndrome. And I, the first time I ever read one of his books, I couldn't even describe it. I'm not sure I can now very well. The way he wrote and the way he looked at things was so different. That had, a, that really had, a, 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 had an impact on me because I loved that he had his own way of looking at it mm. and his own way of doing it, because I always wanted to be different. I liked making my own clothes because made me different. I liked doing things that other people weren't doing. And when I saw his writing and how it was so different than everyone else's, that really, I gravitated toward that. And then, um, then come to find out, the little town in Louisiana where we lived and moved away from when I was nine, eight, eight or nine, he ended up living there. Oh. for. Decade, <laughs> and he died in this little place called Covington, Louisiana, oh my. which is where I had spent so much time there, and I never knew that, which I think is really strange.
0: Fantastic.
2: And
1: um, as an as an older adult, I've loved a lot of Anna Quinlan's books. Mm, okay. I thought Black and Blue was an amazing uh, study on domestic violence, mm. and um, I was just you know, I I really like the way she writes. I think it's very, her writing is very pure, and very rich, and I like that. And so those have been the ones I think off the top of my head that have made the biggest impression
0: on me. Last question. Nancy, do you have any idea what your next novel will be about and when can we expect its release? And will it be another historical biographical novel?
1: well i have just barely begun writing the next one and it is a sequel mm. it is about my grandmother mm. so it's it's clyde and jenny's daughter and yes. she uh she led a life that was just the opposite of her father she was the rags to riches well in one generation they went from riches to rags oh my and her story is what it's like how to do it with grace and dignity Mm. and um i have started writing that when it will be out uh, if i told you that i'd be lying i don't know but i will people are pressing me for it so i did begin to write it and so we're on our way
0: nancy please let me know when it does come out i want you on my show again you are always always welcome nancy
1: well you're so nice it's been a pleasure to talk to you
0: thank you and may god bless and keep you and your family always and forever
1: And God bless you, too. Thank you for
0: having me. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing author Jeffrey Simon. Thank you and good night.